Welcome to Not A Christian Podcast. It's not a Christian podcast. It's a podcast that just happens to be Christian. In this podcast, we tell stories, we talk about life, faith, and pretty much anything else you can imagine. Now let's jump into it. Welcome back to the show. It's episode 37 of Not A Christian Podcast right here on Friday, June 25th. Man, this is probably my favorite theological deep dive that we've done to date on this show. I'm recording the intro afterwards because I didn't really know how long it was going to take. And let me just tell you, it took like the entire episode. So we're going to go ahead and jump into it, continuing our conversation on eschatology and time stuff. But before we do that, I'm going to remind you that it is once again tournament time in the Not A Christian Podcast world. The bracket, it's out on social media, so you can read through it, you can follow along. We're going to start voting on July 5th, so you definitely want to be here for that. But we are having another bracket challenge. So if you want to enter in the bracket challenge, you can go to the link in my bio, and there's a link to a Google Doc that has the bracket on it. So what you can do is you can like screenshot that on your computer and fill it out. You can print that out and fill it out by hand take a picture of it, send it back to me, or you can just screenshot the bracket on social media and and send it back to me somehow in that way. Uh, just be sure to do that by July 5th at 5 p.m. because that's when voting starts. And, and if you're doing the bracket challenge, let me remind you of a couple of things. We're doing the scoring the exact same as, as we did the March Madness Worship Edition bracket. So as rounds go on, points escalate and also upsets at any point in the tournament are worth double the points. So a second round matchup, for instance, is typically worth two points. But let's say, for instance, you have a 12 seed defeating a four seed. Well, that's a lower seed beating a high seed. So that'll be worth double the points. So in the second round, that'll be worth four points. And if your championship pick is an upset and you get that correct, then that's that's 20 points. So fortune will favor the bowl, but don't go crazy with the upset picks because I think I, I think I seeded these fairly well, but you never know. So so upsets are worth double points. Fortune will favor the bowl. And remember, as you're filling out a bracket, you are filling it out according to how you think other people are going to vote, not necessarily on what you think is the best. So for instance, you might really love the the 13 seed the subway five dollar foot long but let's be honest here the five dollar foot long ain't winning this whole thing <laughs> you know so if you really love the five dollar foot long you want to put it in your championship matchup that's probably not a smart thing to do because nobody else likes it no one likes subway subway is garbage <laughs> but do this according to how you think other people will vote not necessarily by what you think is the best and the prizes for the bracket, anybody who beats me, no matter how many it is, will win a Not A Christian Podcast sticker. And the overall winner of the bracket challenge will win a $25 gift card to the fast food restaurant of their choice. Guys, I am so excited about this tournament. As we saw in the last tournament, 
anything can happen. In a future episode of the show, I will give you all of my picks, but I'm going to go ahead and post my bracket at the link in my bio just for accountability purposes, just so you guys can know who I'm picking. Y'all, anything can happen. It's it's going to be it's going to be wild. Be sure to enter the bracket competition. It's going to be so much fun. It was fun last time. It's going to be fun this time. I'm so excited to see who is going to win this tournament. So with all that being said, go Go print out a bracket. Go fill it out. Send it back to me. Take a picture. Do whatever you have to do. Just get me a bracket. Let's try to have as many people enter this as possible. Going to be so much fun, but we've got a lot to talk about in today's show. So let's go ahead and jump into the conversation on eschatology. Hey, welcome back to the conversation. This is week four of our eschatology series, so if you've been listening, you're probably familiar with most of the terms that we're going to be throwing around here today, but if this is your first time listening, maybe before you listen to this, go ahead and go back and listen to the previous three episodes because in our conversation about eschatology or the study of the last things, we've gone through and discussed the three main views on the end times. Those views are premillennial, which means Jesus will come back before a literal 1,000-year reign to rule. We've talked about postmillennialism, where we talked about how Christ will return after a long period of blessing on earth, and Jesus will come after the millennium, which is not literally a thousand years necessarily, but this time will begin at a very distinct point in history. And then finally, we talked about amillennialism, which is characterized by a spiritual or non-literal millennial reign or thousand-year reign of Jesus, but amillennialism teaches that we are now in the millennial reign of Christ, and when Jesus comes back, it will be a one-off single event in which the living and the dead will be judged, and it will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And of course, those descriptions I just gave were not nearly encapsulating of every detail of those things. So, if, if you're interested in those, go back and listen to the previous three episodes. They might be enlightening to you toward our conversation today. But the purpose of today's show is to continue the conversation about eschatology and, and kind of point you in a direction, or I guess bring you along in my journey as, as I've been learning and studying about eschatology for about three or so years now. It's It's been a while since I've been looking into this, so my views are still developing. There's still some things that I don't really know, but I have come to uh, a conclusion, or I guess uh, a conclusion about what I believe, not necessarily everything that's true, because if there's anything or any theological topic, I should say, that is shrouded in mystery still, it's eschatology, because it hasn't happened yet. So there's no way we can say with any definite language that here's how it is going to happen. And in fact, there's probably going to be some things that happen at the end times whenever Jesus does come back that none of us saw coming. God is going to make it a, a wild time, I would suspect. 
However, we do have ways that we can know things about the future and things about how the end will come about. As I told you in previous weeks, today I'm going to tell you kind of where I fall on this, if, as if you couldn't tell in the previous episodes. Uh, it's funny because uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, like, hey, I listened to all three, and there was definitely one in particular I could tell that, that you were probably a little more into uh, because of the detail you went into and just the way you spoke about it. And so, you know, I tried. I really tried to, to be as impartial as possible, uh, but sometimes, you know, when I, when I talk about something I truly believe in, uh, it, it's a little easier to do so and I get a little more jazzed about it, I guess. But uh, before we kind of get to that, let me just kind of walk you through my eschatological journey about when did I start thinking about the end times. And if we're being honest, this topic is probably like my favorite you know, secondary issue to, to dive into and to talk about and to read about because it's just so interesting. And, and throughout all of my reading and, you know, listening to sermons and lectures on eschatology and the conclusions I've come to, the more and more I've realized that it does have really practical implications for how we do theology or how we do ministry. And the way we think about God, the way we think about people, and eschatology is very much tied to the way we think about heaven and eternity. So so eschatology, while it's shrouded in mystery and while it's going to happen one way or another, whether we know with any certainty or not how it's going to happen, how we believe it's going to happen influences the way we minister to other people. So I think it's, it's an important thing for us to talk about, to think about. So really, when I was, you know, I guess in my early days of being a Christian, I was just kind of discipled by the culture. Uh, and what I mean by that is just whatever was common in the beliefs about the end times, that's what I believed. So obviously, kind of in the media, and most Christians kind of believe in this, okay, here's how it's going to happen. The, the rapture is going to happen. Everybody that believes in Jesus is just going to disappear all of a sudden. And they're going to go to heaven, be with Jesus. And then there's going to be this time of tribulation. And there's going to be this thousand year reign of Jesus in which sometimes, in which some people are going to be able to repent and believe and and go to heaven when they die. um, But most will not. And then after a thousand years, Satan's going to be bound, thrown into the lake of fire. And then everybody's going to be, you know, and obviously if you listen to the episode on premillennialism, that's a lot of what premillennialism is, particularly dispensational premillennialism. And I remember being in like college and and when I was interning at the, the BSM at Angelo State, I remember talking to people about this. And I remember saying like, man, I'm just as confused as you are. I don't know. I would go to passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, like we're going to really dive into that today. But I would come to the conclusion like, yes, there has to be this rapture event because of what's outlined in scripture here. And then that's just kind of where I settled for a long time. And I was okay with it because I didn't think there was really any other option as far as like Orthodox Christianity or if anybody believed in something different, they were just kind of like maybe some kind of weird liberal or they didn't take scripture seriously because it was right there in the Bible. Here's how things are going to happen. Sorry, I had to take a break for a second to let the sirens go by. <laughs> but that was just but that was just the way it was going to happen. 
And then I remember this specific moment when I was in seminary. It was in a Greek class of all places where the professor I had, his name was Dr. Lyle, he made a joke about the rapture happening. And this was in the fall of 2017 or maybe uh, early spring of 2018. And he made this joke about the rapture happening and, you know, we all kind of uh, embellished it a little bit, went along with it. And at the end of the conversation, he said, by the way, I don't actually believe in a rapture. And then he started talking about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he started talking about like the metaphors that existed in this passage. And I remember just thinking like, whoa, I thought the rapture in Christianity was like this foregone conclusion that everybody believed in. It had to be true. And the fact that this seminary professor who had like a PhD in the New Testament didn't affirm this idea of the rapture, it it kind of rattled me a little bit. It surprised me. It confused me. And these are the kinds of moments that just stick with you far beyond that moment. Because it, it kind of, it got an idea into my head And I just had to find answers. So I did some light reading during that time over the next few months, next year or so, really. And then when you fast forward to the spring of 2019, I was still in seminary and I had a New Testament course with the same professor. And a part of that class was that we got to choose a New Testament passage to write an exegesis on. And an exegesis in that context is basically a research paper over a specific passage of scripture. So, since I wanted to learn about the rapture, or the supposed rapture, or maybe even the rapture that doesn't exist, I chose 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, because I wanted to understand what does this passage mean. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to read it on your own at some point, Uh, but I'm going to read it right here. And then we'll kind of dive into talking about what this passage says. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 reads like this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord." Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, many people, maybe if if you read this or you just heard it, many people look at this as kind of an end times itinerary. It gives us a little glimpse into what's going to happen when all things come to an end. This is a passage that's kind of shrouded with, with mystery and speculation, and it's a source of confusion and perplexity for a lot of people. But the question is, does it really merit a surface-level reading, or is there something deeper that we can get out of this passage? Is it prescribing a coming of Jesus in which dead believers will be sucked out of their graves, soon followed by the living believers being sucked out of this earth? 
And in that moment, will unmanned cars suddenly careen down the interstate, crashing into each other, crashing into trees and guardrails, running off the roads? Will unworn clothes suddenly collapse to the ground in the absence of a body? And will those who were left behind be confused by the sudden disappearance of millions of people across the world? This is where context when reading scripture is key. So let's go ahead and dive into the context of 1 Thessalonians. Who was it written to? Who was it written by? What was going on in the world? What was going on in the church to whom it was written? Well, the Thessalonian people, in short, and we'll get more into this later, they were expecting Christ to return during their lifetime. So when people in the Thessalonian church started dying, there was a lot of concern. Therefore, I, as well as many others, will make the case that Paul here in this passage, he's more concerned with pastoral care than he is eschatology or end times. And that's kind of my thesis statement of this episode of the podcast. So just to give a little more insight into the background of 1 Thessalonians, scholars place 1 Thessalonians as being written in the late 40s or early 50s, so potentially just about 12 to 15, maybe 16, 17 years after the death of Jesus. And if this dating of the book holds true, then that would make it the very first of Paul's letters, as he wrote it just a short time after leaving Thessalonica. And if this is true, 1 Thessalonians would be the earliest known Christian writing in existence. Paul, along with Silvanus and Timothy, arrived in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. You can go and read about it there. They had a degree of success as they were sharing the gospel and spreading it to people who had never heard it. But, of course, as it happened a lot... Paul and his brothers in Christ, who were sharing the gospel, stirred up controversy. And there was this mob that formed, and they attacked the house of a guy named Jason, who was a recent convert in Thessalonica. And so these people came, started rioting, attacked the house of Jason, and they were accusing Paul and company of proclaiming another king named Jesus that was not their king, Caesar. And, of course, this, this got the attention of a lot of people. Therefore, Paul was forced to flee Thessalonica after not being there for all that long. And then after a short time, Paul arrives in Athens, but he was unable to once again visit the Thessalonian church, of course, because he was not wanted there. If he showed his face there again, he would probably be imprisoned or killed. And since God had provided a way out for him, he took that and went elsewhere. He was unable to visit the Thessalonian church, so he sent Timothy to collect information about the church at Thessalonica and to tend to them pastorally. And all of this information can be found in the early part of 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. So Timothy goes, he spends some time with the Thessalonians, and he comes back and he reports good news to Paul about the steadfastness of the Thessalonians' faith and their warm reception of him. So the majority of this letter is Paul commending and celebrating their faith and encouraging them to continue. However, we can infer from the letter that Timothy reported that there was one big question that the Thessalonian people had. What 
happens to believers in Jesus who die before the return of Christ. This return of Christ in theological circles, and this is a word I'm going to use a lot throughout the rest of this show, is known as parousia. And parousia is a Greek word which roughly translates to arrival. So this parousia, this arrival of Christ. So most of these Thessalonians, based on what Paul taught them the first time he was there, assumed that they would see this, that Paul was talking about an event that would happen in their lifetime. And we'll go into more detail on that later. And their big worry was that those who had died had missed out on the coming of Jesus, the parousia. Was there any hope for those believers who heard the message of the gospel, received it, and were now dead? So we're going to address the passage now, the passage in question, the passage that supposedly points us toward a rapture. Now maybe you can go back and read it again later, but here's one thing I would ask. Don't necessarily read it through an eschatological lens. Don't go into it assuming it's talking about the final days or the end times. Don't treat it as though this is a passage of eschatological dogma but rather as a letter that was written from a perspective of pastoral affection and encouragement based on what we just talked about and what we're about to talk about. So we have the passage, and we read it earlier in the show, and if you want to pull up your Bible and follow along, feel free to do that. But if you're driving, I would encourage you uh, not to do that. Maybe just listen, and you can go back and, and read the passage later. So starting in verse 13, it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul begins this section of the letter by expressing that he does not want the Thessalonians to be uninformed about the fate of people who have died. Such misinformation might lead the Thessalonians to grieve like people who don't have the hope of Christ, like the pagans that are surrounding them, like the pagans that they used to be. Because remember, in Acts chapter 17, it chronicles these Thessalonian people becoming believers in Christ, some of them from Jewish background, some of them from pagan background. The transition to the topic of death here, if you read the whole letter together, it seems kind of abrupt at first glance, because Paul spends time in the previous section talking about sexual morality, and then he transitions to the conversation of death and hope in death. And the most likely explanation is that the Thessalonians brought up or elicited the topics of sexual morality and death when Timothy was visiting, and Timothy reported back, he said, hey, these are two issues that they're going through right now, and Paul is simply turning to their questions, answering them in sequence. So Timothy reported these topics to Paul in all likelihood. Uh, so, so while we can't know the exact origin for the question of death and what happens to people who die before the return of Christ, the most likely explanation is that the Thessalonians had recently experienced the death of one or more of their own who were believers, and they were wondering if those who had died had hope to experience the return of Christ that Paul taught about when he was there the first time. 
Paul doesn't really indicate about whether or not he talked about death and life after death or anything like that during the time of his physical presence with the Thessalonians, but we could probably assume that Paul is teaching them this for the first time. So Paul starts talking about those who have fallen asleep, and this phrase was a common euphemism in Paul's culture to avoid the stark word death. It's much like In our culture, we would use phrases like passed away, went home, and gone to glory rather than just saying someone died or someone is dead. And a great number of Christian converts that Paul ministered to in Thessalonica, as mentioned, had recently been pagans. And in pagan culture, death was a stage in which there was no hope. Pagans viewed death as a sleep from which there would be no awakening. So all these pagan cultures, these pagan religions, they lived for the present. They lived for what was here on earth. So this idea of an afterlife wasn't present in pagan culture, and that's where a lot of the Thessalonian believers came from. So they were still trying to shed that old way of thinking, that old belief that there was no hope, no life after death. So earlier in the passage, in in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Paul admonishes the Thessalonians in their sexuality to live lives that outsiders would view as proper. And then as we transition into this passage, this segment that we're talking about today, likewise, Paul is saying that the Thessalonians are to distinguish themselves from the rest of the world by not grieving like those people around them who do not have the hope of Christ. The gospel to which the Thessalonians are called and the gospel that they have committed themselves to calls them to even rethink the way they perceive and react to death. And such grief, a hopeful grief, allows the body of Christ to give a public witness that death has been defeated by Jesus. And that takes us into verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. The presence of the word we here indicates that Paul is speaking about an idea that is well known to the Thessalonians. Paul likely wants his audience to understand one thing above all, that his hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. Because God has acted this way in the past by raising Jesus from the grave, then God had the power and the ability to resurrect believers who had also died. This expectation from Paul directly contradicted, once again, the pagan beliefs that still likely lingered among the Thessalonian converts. This idea that death was permanent, it was an end to all of life, it was an end to all of hope. And even among the Jewish believers that were there, and this may surprise you, but in the Old Testament, there is very little reference to the afterlife. There's, there's reference to a new heaven and a new earth, but the idea that, that each individual may live on eternally in one way or another was not really all that present in the Old Testament. So even the Jews who, who had converted, even the Jewish people who, who left the Jewish faith and became Christians in Thessalonica, they also had to rethink the way they thought about death. Because for the Christians, death is a transition into a new type of life and into the presence of Jesus and the beginning of eternal hope 
and not the end of hope. And if the resurrection of the dead were true, the next question from the Thessalonians would naturally be, then where are our loved ones now? And since the parousia, the return or arrival of Christ, hadn't yet happened, the Thessalonians would be perfectly justified in asking this question. Were they already with Jesus, or did they have to wait until the return of Jesus? And if they had to wait till the return of Jesus, the parousia, is there some sort of intermediary state in which they exist until then? And based on Paul's other writings in Philippians chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, and 2 Corinthians 5, 8, readers can assume that Paul affirms that the dead believers are already with Christ. And then we go to verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This verse proclaims Paul's main thesis in this short passage, the question regarding those who died before the parousia. To faithfully and accurately read this verse and the verses following, the reader has to realize, we have to understand that Paul's main concern here is to provide comfort for believers who have lost loved ones and are unsure of whether the lost loved ones will experience the fullness of joy that will come when Jesus returns. Paul isn't trying to provide the Thessalonians with a calendar or a timetable of eschatological events, and the Thessalonians likely thought that the parousia that Paul had proclaimed to them in his initial trip to Thessalonica was something that they would all experience in their own lifetimes. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that the loved ones who are alive at the time of the return of Jesus won't have any advantage over those who have already died. If anything, they will have a slight advantage over them because they will rise first. So Paul is not necessarily saying that he expects to be alive at the coming of Jesus or that he expects it to happen during his lifetime, but he considers himself to be among those who have the possibility of being alive at that time. And of course, we know in hindsight that he was not, and none of those Thessalonian believers were. But to Paul, whether or not he was or wasn't alive at the time of Parousia is a non-issue. He simply seeks to remind the Thessalonians that they need not worry about those who have died or fallen asleep because they will not be disadvantaged in any way when Jesus comes back. He wants to comfort those believers who are still there. So up to this point, verses 13, 14, and 15, we really have no reason to believe that Paul is talking about the end of the world, which is important because... The, the shift that happens next, I'm still not so sure that we can make that assumption that, okay, Paul is now talking about the end of the world because Paul's heart in this passage is pastoral care, not eschatology, not prophecy. So that brings us to verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. For this verse, in verse 17, Paul borrows from biblical and extra-biblical sources to influence his language. The command that Paul refers to in this verse is a military term that signifies the Lord's power and the Lord's authority. And no other New Testament passage uses this word command in this way. The purpose of the word shout in this verse is to command the dead to rise. 
Concerning the voice of the archangel, Paul most likely had in mind the voice of Michael the archangel announcing the arrival of the Lord. And Michael the archangel is also mentioned in the New Testament uh, in Jude 9 and Revelation 12, 7. In other early writings, trumpets are typically used to assemble a community to advance and gather troops to sound a charge and to ensue an ambush or a battle. And in Hebrew thinking, a trumpet is often associated with God's voice and presence. So, so when it's talking about these things, these shouts, these cries of command, this voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, once again, we're not really compelled here to believe that those are literal events or signposts of what will happen at the return of Jesus. The first century audience of this book, the Thessalonians, whether they came from a Greek pagan background or a Hebrew Jewish background, they would recognize the trumpet as meaning the calling together of God's people. When the Lord comes back, the trumpet sounds, the Lord will be gathering his people up. And when Paul acknowledges that the dead in Christ will rise first, he's not necessarily saying they'll be raised first for the final judgment, but rather they'll be raised first, but rather they'll be raised as the first order of business along with those who are still living and they will together meet the Lord. Paul is trying to emphasize that God has not forgotten those people and he won't at any point. And then verse 17, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. So this is kind of the big verse in this passage because it talks about meeting the Lord in the clouds. But once again, Paul identifies with those who will be left at the time of the return of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul suggests the possibility, uh, but not a foregone conclusion, that he will witness the return of Christ in his lifetime. The, the term caught up here can also be translated as snatched or seized, and this word is the word from which the Latin word rapier comes from, and in English, from the Latin word rapier, we get the word rapture. However, the rapture, or the word rapture, does not appear in any English translation of the Bible. Paul may be using a play on words here when he says believers will be caught up, because there was an early scholar named Plutarch who purported the attitude of many of the pagans at Paul's time. And, and I shouldn't mention Plutarch was not a Christian. Plutarch used the word to refer to those who die unexpectedly, and, and now they're disadvantaged because they're excluded from the opportunity to get an education, to get married, to be a citizen um, in a city or a country. And this goes to further emphasize the, the hopelessness that pagans associated with death. And Paul communicates to his believers, however, that the dead are not going to miss out on something or be snatched away from any of the irreplaceable pleasures that this earth can offer but they will receive the gift of being present with the Lord. So while they may be snatched away from this earth and everything good that it has to offer, they will then subsequently be offered something better, which is the presence of God. Paul wanted to remind his first century audience that death is not the end of life, but rather an inauguration into a new and better life. In the entirety of the Old Testament, clouds are typically present during theophanies, or that's just, a, that's just a fancy word for occasions in which God reveals or shows himself. And in this verse, it's the occurrence of, of clouds in Paul's writings 
The usage can be traced back to Daniel 7.13 when the Son of Man is described as coming with the clouds of heaven. When Christ comes, Paul undoubtedly believes that it will be an occasion on par or even surpassing these Old Testament theophanies. Just as Jesus ascended on a cloud, according to Acts chapter 1, Paul believes that he will also descend from a cloud in heaven. So when Paul is saying that Jesus is going to come on a cloud, I don't think he's talking about it literally even necessarily. He's just saying, hey, every time God revealed himself in the Old Testament, they used the language of clouds. So therefore, when Jesus comes, it's not just going to be the return of another person. It's going to be a return of God himself, and he's coming to make all things new. Next, Paul describes a subsequent meeting with the Lord in the air. And this is where we get the idea of a rapture from, that God's going to suck everybody up out of the earth and into his presence in the sky. The word Paul uses here is synonymous with a meeting of a ruler paying an official visit to a city or the return of a war hero to his community. So oftentimes when the king or the emperor of a city would go off to battle, he would return. And on such occasions, the citizens of the city would go out and meet him and escort him back into the town with the ceremony, with this parade. And Paul says that the believer's reception of the coming of the Lord is going to be similar. The resurrected dead and the remaining believers will meet the Lord in the air with the appropriate amount of honor, glory, and fanfare and escort him back to earth. And this has major, major implications. Because what does it assume? It assumes, because Paul is using this metaphor of royalty, parousia had a royal connotation to it in this first century context. So when their king would go off to battle, whenever he would be returning, they would rush out the gates to go and meet him, and they would usher him back into the city and say, here's what we did while you were gone. So when it's saying that we're going to go and meet the Lord in the air, it's not saying we're going to do that literally, but it's going to be like this royal, kingly homecoming where when Jesus comes back, we're going to rush out to meet him. And are we going to embrace him with open arms? And when we usher him back to show him everything we've done, is it something we can be proud of? Were we good stewards of his kingdom when he was not physically present here? So here, Paul is likely uh, appealing to certain Jewish sensibilities. Paul is referring to the meeting in the air as symbolic. In Jewish thought, the air was considered to be the domain of evil spirits. And since Christ is going to meet believers living and dead in the air, he would vanquish the evil gods and demons and these beliefs that were still remnant of both Jewish and pagan cultures. So even in the air the place of evil spirits. Christ is going to come. He's going to be present. He is going to be victorious in his ultimate plan of redemption over those forces of evil. Finally, Paul reassures the believers that we who are alive at the parousia and those who have already died will be with the Lord forever. Paul is just re-emphasizing the purpose behind this section of the letter that anyone who is in Christ, whether they are living or dead at the return of Christ, will be present with the Lord. Those who are alive will in no way be advantaged over those who have already died. And Paul dispels the pagan idea that death has the final say and that the end of life is the end of hope. Believers in Christ have eternal life and eternal hope. And then finally in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. 
Paul concludes this section of his letter by admonishing the Thessalonians to have hope in the words that he's spoken. Paul doesn't encourage the Thessalonian believers to be watchful for the coming of the Lord or to prepare for the coming of Christ or to watch for the signs. And if his intention here was to give an eschatological timeline, was to give a schedule of how the end is going to unfold, it makes a lot of sense that he would have done that, but he did not. While such messages do have a place in the New Testament, and while Jesus did speak of such events, that's not Paul's aim here. His goal is to provide comfort for those who have lost loved ones, and he is concerned with their spiritual well-being. Paul intends for his writing to instill hope for the future, not to induce speculation as to when and how Jesus will come back. Paul recognizes the reality of grief. However, Christian grief is different than the grief for those who do not know God. Paul realizes that people in pain over the loss of loved ones will look for comfort in many places to help manage that pain. However, Paul doesn't use that strategy. He doesn't take advantage of them and say like, oh, you better get your lives right because Jesus is going to come back at any moment. He doesn't try to manage the pain of the Thessalonians but he rather places those who have died in the hands of God and what he has done and what he will do in the future. And even the stories of the dead have a meaning and a future in the context of God's greater story. So ultimately, in order to read this passage faithfully, we have to do two things. We have to interpret it in the words and the context of its own audience because like I said last week, Scripture cannot mean something to us that it did not mean to its first century audience. So did this mean to its first century audience, here's how the end times are going to unfold? I don't think so. In fact, I would strongly suggest that it does not. Absolutely does not. Therefore, it can't mean that to us. And the second thing we have to do is we have to consolidate it with the rest of Scripture. Is there such an idea of a rapture really presented in any other place in Scripture? I don't think so. Failure to do either of these things, interpret the scripture in its context, and to consolidate it with the rest of scripture, could lead us to embrace errant theology, therefore misguided practices in our churches and in our ministries. So first, we have to look at the section of scripture in light of the verses immediately around it. When we use this passage as just an eschatological timetable, we're minimizing its original intent, which was not eschatological, but pastoral. And interpreting this passage as solely eschatological or in times is appropriating the past struggles of the Thessalonian audience to fulfill our own agenda. And using this passage in that way is a largely American practice and an obsessive one at that. As reported by Timothy on his visit to Thessalonica, the people there were struggling with what was happening to the believers who died, who did not get to experience the return of Christ during their lifetime. Their most pressing question, we can confidently assume, was something to the degree of, is there any hope for those who have already died? Paul set out to answer that question pastorally. He reminded them that while their grief can exist, they are not to grieve differently than those who do not hope in Christ, and therefore they don't have any hope for life after death if they're a pagan. If death equals hopelessness, they had reason to grieve just like the pagans did. Death, however, is not the end, and Paul reminds them that since God raised Jesus from the dead, he certainly has the power to raise their loved ones from the dead. 
at the appropriate time ordained by God. Paul uses language such as command, archangel, trumpet sounds, dissension from heaven, and being caught up together with the Lord to instill a sense of confidence in the believers that when Jesus does return, he will do so with power, authority, and all the honor that is due him. Paul encourages the Thessalonians to use these words as encouragement, and he doesn't advise them to view these words as cryptic because he didn't write them cryptically. Likewise, Paul would not advise us, if he were around today as modern readers, to read these words cryptically because that wasn't his purpose. And we have to realize that, that comfort was Paul's primary concern, and those who died would live again. Because Jesus died and rose again, That is what we know for certain, that we must humble our interpretation of the more nuanced details in this passage. Next, we have to align the passage with similar passages, particularly that Paul wrote. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that believers shall not sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. In Philippians 3.21, Paul says that Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The first of these passages discusses that the believers who are not yet dead at the time of parousia They will be changed, Paul says. The presence of a trumpet and the resurrection of the dead indicates that Paul is equating these events with the events that he is talking about in 1 Thessalonians. And in both of these passages, Paul is speaking of parousia at about the return of Christ as more of a transformative event, more so than one in which we are going to escape this world. It's not going to be a time when Jesus comes back and and to, to take us away from this place. Because if the metaphor that he uses about royalty and going out to meet our king, just like they went out and met their king, when we meet our king, Jesus, we're not going anywhere. The Bible tells us that God is going to recreate heaven and recreate earth. He is going to transform this earth into something else, not get rid of it completely. So that right there, I can just tell you right now, and you've probably gathered from this, especially if you've listened to the previous episodes, I'm not premillennial. Uh, so, so you can cross that one off. I do not subscribe to premillennialism because a tenet of premillennialism is that when that rapture happens, when, when God takes everyone away from this earth, he's going to completely destroy it and start over new somewhere else. And quite simply, I don't think the Bible teaches that. I, I, I think of it as a transformative event. God is going to recreate heavens and earth. He is going to use what he has already created and say that, look, I'm God and I am so powerful that even this earth that has been corrupted by a multitude of things, so much sin, so much brokenness, and the history of this earth is so shrouded in that even that, even that I can redeem because I am God. God saw his creation. He saw it as good. He's not ready to give up on it. He's going to recreate heaven. He's going to recreate earth. He's going to turn everything that was broken into something beautiful. So so the parousia, the return of Jesus is not to escape this earth. It's not to call us into this disembodied spiritual heaven. It's to come back and reclaim once and for all and finally what belongs rightfully to God. And if we read 1 Thessalonians 4 in that way, that is in stark contrast to what Paul, the exact same writer, is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. 
It's in stark contrast to what he is saying in Philippians 3.21. How do we reconcile those? We have to rethink the way we think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and whether or not it actually talks about a rapture. The interpretive key here, the most important part of what we're saying today in regard to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 lies in the metaphor, the royalty metaphor, meeting the Lord in the air. Paul put this idea in a setting in which the Thessalonian people would understand. As mentioned before, a meeting like this was equated with meeting of an emperor when he visited or returned to a city. The citizens would rush out and they would meet him. They would, they would exclaim the emperor's royalty and they would honor him with appropriate pomp and circumstance. And all of this seems reconcilable to rapture theology so far. But what Paul knew and what the first century Thessalonian believers knew, but that we do not is that the citizens did not accompany the emperor or the ruler and leave. They escorted him back into their own city. While they tried to be stewards of of everything, not everything always went to plan. And when the emperor came back, they expected him to restore the city, to rescue the city, and to conquer any enemies who had infiltrated. And the emperor came in and he made things right. Since Paul was using this metaphor, he and his readers would not see the rapture through American eyes, where when the emperor, when King Jesus comes back, he's going to take us far away. No, when King Jesus comes back, he's going to come back into this earth to restore the earth, to rescue the earth, and to conquer any enemies who have infiltrated the earth. And when the emperor came in and transformed a city When Jesus comes, he will transform the earth. When the Lord returns, he will do so not to provide a means of escape, but rather to usher in a new heaven and a new earth, as detailed in Isaiah 65 and Revelation chapter 21. And all of this is contingent upon one word, parousia. Paul uses this word in an unprecedented manner. He doesn't borrow it from the Old Testament. It had this royal connotation which resonated with the people in the first century. Therefore, parousia was not originally a biblical or theological term. It was borrowed from Paul's culture. The word is associated with the presence of royalty and with the power of a king and is associated not with the king rescuing the people by allowing them to escape. He is rescuing by returning with the people to their dwelling place and restoring justice and setting things right. Parousia isn't a biblical term, but it's a term of Paul's culture. And we must assume that he is going to fully carry out the metaphor. When Christ returns, it will not be a time for believers to escape. Our meeting with the Lord in the air is not another way of saying in order to safely stay away from the wicked world, we have to go with Jesus. It'll be a time of of God restoring justice and restoring things back to order. It'll be a time when the Messiah will reign and redeem. Using this metaphor, Paul continues to separate Christian hope from pagan hope by saying that when Christ reigns, that he will be the source of hope, not the king, not the emperor, not Caesar. Nor will hopelessness reign in the hearts of believers. Hope will reign supreme. How can we then 
use this passage. First, we, we just know that death isn't final. All who believe in Jesus Christ and trust him and can look forward to the resurrection at the parousia, at the return of Jesus. Those who have lost loved ones can take heart in the power of God because he can resurrect their loved ones as he resurrected his beloved son, our King Jesus. We can learn that grief is not ungodly, and Paul didn't denounce or minimize the grief of the Thessalonians. Instead, he encouraged the embrace of grief marked with hope. Christian grief is not grief marked with dread or hopelessness, but rather a longing for the restoration of God's design. We know that one day, God, through Jesus, will restore creation to his own original design. However, to satiate our desire for eschatological clarity, perhaps we can find gratification in this passage after all. If we can state anything with clarity based on this passage, it's that Jesus Christ will return for his creation. And the means, the schedule, and the details are secondary, but a rapture-based interpretation of this passage in 1 Thessalonians may lead us to watch the graves of our loved ones, hoping they will emerge and suddenly ascend to heaven, But such interpretations may also lead us to endlessly speculate when we or those around us will suddenly be sucked up into the sky. We may put our ears to the heavens longing to hear a trumpet or turn our eyes skyward in hopes that Christ is riding in on each passing cloud. However, doing so inspires us into a belief that things will only be right with the world when we leave it behind. Through a faithful reading of this passage and through reconciling it with other passages, we can have faith that when the coming of Jesus happens, it will not be an escape from this world, but it'll be a transformation of this world. How then would we use our time on earth differently? How anxious will we be to usher King Jesus back to make things right? There have been countless sermons and lectures, I think, that have abused this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When we use the fear of the rapture as our motivation to bring others to Christ, what are we really accomplishing? We win people to whatever we win them with. And what I mean by that is if we win people over with fear, we are winning them to fear. If we use fear as the means, fear will be the end product. However, if we win people with love, we will win them to love. As ministers of the gospel, and if you are listening to this and you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, even if it's not your job title, you are a minister of the gospel. We have to resist using cheap fear tactics and gimmicks to quote-unquote win people to Christ. Committing to Christ on the basis of fear is completely unbiblical. Paul's motivation expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is love. The love of Christ compels and calls Paul. And in light of the faithful interpretation of this text, we can no longer use 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as a reason to scare people into heaven. It simply doesn't work. We have to be pastoral and have care and look to love people rather than to instill fear in them. So the misappropriation of this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 passage, it has led many believers into endless and fruitless speculation about when Jesus will come back. 
Perhaps many believers look upon this passage in fear, wondering if they will be one of the ones who is taken to heaven or one who is left behind. Will they be missing out on the coming of Jesus? God's plan of restoration ultimately calls us to do far greater things than conjecture about when we will meet our end. The question is, do we have the faith to live as though we are people of Christ and not people who fear the rapture? We don't have to guess and we don't have to live in fear because one thing is sure that Jesus rose from the dead. God does not call us to a wild goose chase or to strive after the wind. He calls us to participate in his kingdom, which is much nearer and much more concrete than we have often in the past believed. God does not call us to entertain fanciful daydreams about Jesus' future second coming. He calls us to live in the present reality of Jesus' life and work on the cross and the present reality of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Through the cross, Christ reconciled humanity to God. And because of all this, we know that he will one day return and make all things right. So in light of this passage, we can avert our eyes from the unknown future to the known present that will lead to the known future. So that was a deep dive into the the 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 passage. Oftentimes that passage has basically been used as the linchpin that people go to to defend the rapture. And there's really no other place in scripture that, that argues for the rapture. And if that reading that we just went through of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is true, then I don't think we can use it any longer to defend a rapture. So I realize that after all this, I've never really told you exactly where I landed. Uh, like I said, I'm not premillennial, so if, if that's where you thought I was, I'm not. <laughs> that leaves us with postmillennial and all millennial, and we'll continue this conversation in the future. This isn't the last episode of the eschatology series, but I am all millennial. I'm not postmillennial. I am all millennial, uh, and and this passage was was a big part of that. In in coming to a faithful reading of this passage of scripture and knowing that. You know, there. I don't think there's such a thing as a rapture. In fact, now as I look on it, I think the rapture, in in that sense of of you know what we've been talking about, I think it's just complete garbage, <laughs> for lack of a better term. It's unbiblical nonsense. Uh, the idea of a rapture. So so I am all millennial, and I realize right now I just kind of tore down like one of them, one of the systems of eschatology. And, but like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll continue this conversation at a later date and we'll talk about a little bit more about why I'm amillennial and what I like about amillennialism and why I don't necessarily subscribe to post-millennialism. And then we'll talk more and more about the implications of our eschatology. So this was a fun conversation. We'll get more into it next time. Uh, but for now, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. So that's all the evangelical filth I've got for you. That's a wrap and that's a frat snap. Next time, I promise I'll do just a little bit better later. <laughs>